0: From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. So, $2.25 trillion. That's the price tag of the infrastructure proposal President Biden unveiled yesterday. It used to be unusual, unthinkable even, for a legislative proposal to total in the trillions of dollars, or at least one that wasn't related to the military. Now, in the post-COVID stimulus age we live in, the T word just doesn't seem to inspire as much awe as it used to. However, unlike those COVID stimulus bills, this infrastructure package would be paid for by tax increases, specifically corporate tax increases. But even though Biden's proposal includes around $150 billion for highway projects, it does not include any increase in the gas tax. To talk about the implications of all this, we turn to officials from the previous two administrations. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Austin Goolsbee, an economist at the University of Chicago, who advised President Obama on his response to the Great Recession. But first, we'll start with DJ Gribben. Gribben served as a special assistant to President Trump, focused specifically on infrastructure. Now he's an infrastructure consultant with his own firm, Madras LLC, in Northern Virginia. Gribben spoke with Bloomberg Tax's Colin Wilhelm about the downsides of a top-down federal-led infrastructure program and the risks of spending on highways without raising the gas tax.
1: I think the Biden administration's plan was interesting on a number of levels. I mean, first of all, I think you have to give the administration credit for having a broad, holistic view of infrastructure, not focusing on any particular asset, class, or element. Um, I think that broad view may cause them troubles. We'll talk about that a little later. Uh, I was also surprised by the general approach, which is it seems like they just loaded the cannons with cash and then fired a broadside at all the infrastructure problems out there in America, right? Um, And like most things in life, uh, money can help, but it's rarely a solution uh, to a problem on its own. I think also creating a series of federal programs to address certain problems. Uh, can, it, it's politically appealing, but in practice, it's rarely all that helpful to have a federal program addressing specific infrastructure challenges. And I say that because most people don't understand that the federal government only owns 6% of our nation's infrastructure, 6%. And so the federal government's a relatively small player. It provides about 25% of the funding almost all the key decision infrastructure and the strategy is made at the state and local level. So what to build, how to build it, how to pay for it, those are all state and local decisions. So this is an unusually federal centric approach to American infrastructure.
2: And there were um, items in there, tax items, to help pay for it, Uh, although it's unclear as to whether the entire thing's gonna be paid for. We haven't seen scoring on that yet. Um, but there was no mention of a raise to gas tax or a vehicle mileage tax. Um, do you think that those stay off the table in this conversation or do they get reintroduced once Congress starts to play a bigger role in this? I think it's very hard for Congress
1: to put a tax on the table that the administration doesn't support. And to be honest, you, I was a little surprised, as you probably really followed, that the Secretary Buttigieg during his confirmation hearing Essentially, said all options are on the table, and the White House ran out and said, No, 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 gas tax is not on the table. And then a subsequent hearing uh, was open to vehicle mile traveled fee, uh, and the White House again backtracked on that. So that's problematic for a couple of reasons. One, it takes a legitimate revenue source off the table. And secondly, part of the social compact we've had on infrastructure, primarily highways, is that. Users of the facility will pay a gas tax at the state and at the federal level, and those taxes will then be used to fund the infrastructure they use. So almost, it's not really a tax, it's almost more like a user fee. Um, when you move away from that to truly tax, it, there's a host of policy reasons that crop up as a result of that. So I think it
2: would be difficult for Congress to put it back on the table if the administration objects. Do you think that they might end up having to find other ways to help finance this, though? Uh, that's something that's always a, a challenge with infrastructure or legislation. It's a, it's a challenge for
1: everything. Paying for it is a challenge for everything. If you ask people what they want, everyone says, "I would yes, I would like to more of that, until you ask them to pay for it. And then markets work and supply and demand balances and, you know, life is good. But, um, yeah, I, I think they're hopefully will find additional revenue sources. One of the most irresponsible things the federal government is doing currently is borrowing tons of cash when it's not absolutely necessary. So the Trump administration borrowed money to cut taxes in 2017, uh, then borrowed money for stimulus, uh, for for COVID response. Um, There's a bit of an unholy alliance currently between conservatives and liberals, where both parties seem to be comfortable borrowing money to pay for their priorities And uh, just
2: putting these these policy issues on a grandkids credit card is not a good approach to public policy. So, yeah, that sounds like you don't buy into the argument that uh, treasury rates are historically or near historically low. Why not borrow for a, a one time cost like infrastructure? So
1: it it's I do not buy into that as the short. Yes, I do not buy into that. So if treasury rates are low, that means you should think more about borrowing than you might if treasury rates are high. But borrowing is still borrowing. I think some people confuse low interest money with free money, right? So it still costs. You still have to pay it back. You still have to show return on investment. You still have to do a balance. But, but right now, there is this um, unusual cognitive dissonance between uh, having to pay for something with borrowed money that you have to pay back. And thinking that money is
2: free. And President Biden yesterday during his speech in Pittsburgh framed this plan as uh, essential to keeping the US competitive with the rest of the world. Is that something that you agree with, or uh, do you think that might be a little bit overhyped? I, I do agree with that.
1: I do agree with that. And, and not only does it keep us competitive with the rest of the world, but it just improves our daily quality of life. Um, you know, if you're in a blackout in Texas in the winter, that is not high quality of life. If you're stuck in traffic, twice a day trying to get to your home, to the office and back, that is not a good quality of life. If you've got to worry about turning on your tap and is this water safe for my children to drink, that is not good quality of life. So I think infrastructure both benefits our international competitiveness, but probably more importantly, good infrastructure improves every American's quality of life.
2: What do you think of um, the argument that raising I, basically undoing parts of the, the TCJA to help pay for part of this would also would negatively affect that competitiveness, kind of the, the flip side of what President Biden was mentioning yesterday. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that makes infrastructure really
1: interesting um, and, and just makes public policy very interesting is public policy is like a spider web where you can pull on certain elements to move it, but it impacts so many other things And so a little bit of what's happened is uh, the administration has taken a can of silly string to that spider web and just created all of these new paths in hopes to fix certain problems. But invariably, when you do that, you create other problems or other inefficiencies. So a large federal program to oversee a specific um, action can be helpful, but that program comes with a lot of rules and regulations and bureaucracy, and it's slow and burdensome. And similarly, when we think about financing infrastructure, right? Um, yes, you can take money and put in infrastructure and it will have some stimulative impact and it will improve, as we talked about, our international competitiveness and our, our quality of life. But that, that comes at a cost, which is you're taking it from highly productive corporations and you're giving it to the government, meaning those productive corporations will not be able to hire people. They may have to not be able to pay people as much. They may have lower dividends. So our 401ks drop. Um, and it could make those corporations less competitive internationally. So ironically, in an effort to become more internationally competitive, we could make ourselves less internationally competitive because we haven't done the right cost-benefit analysis.
2: And do you think that the alternative for paying for something like this would be user fees, uh, new bond issuances, uh, a greater role for for state and local governments to help pay for it?
1: Yeah, the the best way to pay for infrastructure, uh, because what you want is you want to clearly assess the pluses and minuses of that investment, is to do that at the local level wherever possible, right? Because first of all, they'll make the best decisions. One of the challenges you see, the federal government comes in with bridge money, and guess what? People build bridges. You know, Whether the bridge is the right solution or not, they'll build a bridge because that's what they have money for. Um, and so it helps make the best policy decisions, and then also it helps people see the, 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 the costs and benefits of that decision one of the challenges of federal funding is most communities consider that funding to be free right Um, and they put all of the effort into accountability and appropriate project selection that you would expect people to put into a project with free money which is they don't put any effort at all into it so you end up because the money feels free communities end up making decisions that are suboptimal and then at the end of the day that erodes public trust and confidence that governments are making good decisions because you know the public's out there's like why am i paying for this facility that we don't really need um the the proposal touched on but didn't really solve the shovel ready conundrum and if you'll recall during the global financial crisis and era that followed it the Obama administration tried to spend a lot of money on infrastructure, but there actually wasn't any infrastructure ready to build that didn't already have funds associated with it. And so think of California high-speed rail, right? We, we decided that was the top priority for the Obama administration a decade ago, and we still don't have an operational segment, right? Um, and you could, you could fault, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, but fundamentally, it just takes a long time to permit and build it. So think of what they're doing. They're taking corporate taxes today, so they're pulling that money away from productive use of that revenue, and they're putting it in an area that can't possibly be spent in the near term, that's going to be spent four or five years from now. Um, So to the extent that our concern is we need to stimulate our economy, this is not the most efficient way to go about that. That was DJ Gribben,
0: a former infrastructure advisor to President Trump, speaking with Bloomberg Taxes, Colin Wilhelm. Now we go back in time to the Obama administration to talk with Austin Goolsbee, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Goolsbee took over that role in 2010 during implementation of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the law that may have actually coined the term shovel-ready. Now he's an economist at the University of Chicago. Goolsbee spoke with Bloomberg Tax's Allison Versprill about why the proposal's changes to the corporate rate wouldn't really be a tax hike, but rather a return to normalcy.
3: In the, administra- in the Obama administration, there were many people, and I was one of them, that thought it made sense to reduce the corporate uh, income tax rate from the f- much higher levels down to 28%. And that was widely supported in the corporate community. Um, the Trump tax cut of 2017 was far beyond anything that the that the corporate sector asked for it was uh put us into a situation where we were collecting record low levels of revenue from big corporations and for us to go to 28 uh, now would put us pretty much right in a standard competitive level with the other Biggest economies of the world, so i I think that's a, I think that's a bit of a red herring, and I think that the massive corporate tax cut at the time, um, I said m- most of this money is just going to be a windfall handout um, to corporations that's not actually going to incentivize. The kinds of increase in investment that they're promising—it's not going to pay for itself the way they're promising. It's not going to lead to a, to an increase in workers' wages of the magnitude that they that they are promising. And all of those pessimistic forecasts on mine and other people's part have proven true. They proved true. There was no sustained investment boom from the uh, from the corporate tax cut. So. That we would go back to levels that are basically historic norms and are perfectly comparable to the other large economies I- around the world. I-, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And in fact, when the American people, when you ask the American people in polling, do you, th- A, do you think that it worked that they uh, cut corporate taxes $2 trillion? Overwhelmingly, they say no. And in this infrastructure proposal you you may have seen the morning consult poll just came out and by a two to one margin people want there to be an increase in taxes on big corporations and high-income people to pay for this package They, they believe that that's that's what's warranted
4: And so, you know, I think some people are are wondering why, I I know the administration has pretty much steered clear of a gas tax or a mileage tax to fund the plan. Um, Do you have thoughts on why they may have made this decision? And do you think there's any chance that that, you know, potentially gets added as this plan starts to make its way through Congress? I don't
3: know. You know, I'm just a policy guy and in a way that sounds somewhat like a heavy political calculation. I will say that if you take a step back and think about it, it's not you would want more broad-based revenue sources than just user fees on highways um, or user fees on drivers to fund broad infrastructure. Um, so I, I I can't say that I'm that, that I find it that surprising that they would not just rely on that and. The second thing is, if you're talking about a plan at this level of ambition, let's call it, or you know, at this with making this many investments, I don't even know what the gas tax would have to be to pay for that. Uh, but it's it's kind of not conceivable that that you could do it all with gas taxes.
4: Right. No, and obviously the corporate tax rate uh, that that that's pretty big money, even just raising that a couple of percentage points. Um, and so, you know, again, when we're talking about Congress, too, I, I want to ask, you know, having been in an, in, you know, part of a presidential administration before, what kind of challenges do you foresee with this plan? Um, you know, and also the second proposal we're expecting to see later this month, that would include tax hikes on the wealthy.
3: Well, look, in the environment that we're in, where you got 50 Democrats, you got 50 Republicans, and it's very uh, divided... The challenge is going to be every senator on the Democratic side has a veto um, and so you have to you you have to come up with a plan that appeals to everyone simultaneously and if literally if any one senator from Joe Manchin to anyone else says they can't support it, then it's done. Um, That said, I do think the will this be a 50 vote reconciliation bill versus will this be a 60 vote bipartisan bill in a way that was decided from the very beginning, because as I put it, to get 60 votes, you have to get 10 Republicans. So go think about who's the 10th least conservative Republican and what would they support that Joe Biden would propose. I went and just just for curiosity's sake, I went and looked up on the on the ACU conservative ratings. Who's the tenth least Republican voter in the Senate last year? It was John Cornyn of Texas. The thought that oh, what what could Joe Biden propose that John Cornyn would support? There's nothing that Joe Biden could propose that John Cornyn would support. So I think that was decided. You know when when they had the runoff election in georgia i mean i i just think i just think that was done so the political challenge as as the economist looking at it is you got to keep all 50 democrats on board so if joe manchin says i really don't like something whatever it is broadband blah 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 um then then it's going to come out of the bill um that said, I think president biden's one of the lessons he learned from the last twenty five thirty years is uh, I think you're better off not negotiating against yourself ahead of time because making concessions before you've ever even started the battle it doesn't it doesn't engender uh it doesn't engender support from the opposition they just say ah great we got rid of some of those now let's let's work on the next one so i think this initial statement is pretty bold i mean it's this is as big as as any infrastructure package in american history i think so uh it'll be interesting to see how it plays out That was
0: Austin Goolsbee, an economist at the University of Chicago and a former Obama administration advisor, speaking with Bloomberg Tax's Allison Brissbrill. Before that, we heard from former Trump advisor DJ Gribben talking with Colin Wilhelm. You can find up-to-the-minute news on the infrastructure proposal as well as all the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website once again is news.bloombergtax.com. And if you have any thoughts about what you just heard or any thoughts about anything, uh, get in touch with us on Twitter. We use the handle at Tax. Talking Tax is produced by myself, David Schultz. Patrick Ambrosio is our editor and our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz.
5: Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Adam Allington, the host and producer of Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. It isn't hyperbole to say that the murder trial of George Floyd is likely to be one of the most significant court cases in a generation. In fact, in the nine months since Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, the name George Floyd has become synonymous with a growing movement for police reform, as well as a massive racial reckoning that has spread to all corners of American society. As the trial unfolds, the Uncommon Law podcast will be reporting on the trial in real time, or quasi-real-time. Given the amount of interest in this case and the impact it's sure to have, we felt that it was important to be part of that discussion. So if you find yourself interested in this case, either in terms of social justice or because of the legal theories and precedents it touches on, or just because you might be on your own journey learning about issues of race and racism, then I think this is the podcast for you. Just click download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.